Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Uh, what's, what's been going on with you? You've been traveling. 
No, I haven't been trapped. I just had a bad problem with um, sciatic situation. Okay. Getting the handle. I've got a handle on that, so that's better. That's all the parts breaking down. You know, like a used car, warranty ran. You know, it's got to slow down the process, right? Slow it down, right? Hmm? Slow down the process, right? It's breaking down. Is that possible? <laughs> <laughs> I know why people look at it. I get all of this shit. <laughs> it's crazy, man. Yeah, I'm ready, Judge. Are you ready? Go ahead. Yeah, Judge. I'm here. I'm here. We all be. It's an honor once again to have all the one and only Judge Joe Brown. Uh, today's date is April the 6th, 2017, about two days ago. Uh, Memphis and the nation observed, and the world actually observed the uh, 49th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Memphis. And that has actually kicked out a year-long celebration. I don't know, I guess it's a celebration or uh, remembering of what happened that day and how it shook the world and its legacy. How are you doing today, sir? All right, the judge is back in the house. The judge is back in the house. I, you played a pivotal role in the, uh, I guess, the latest narrative of this story about what happened to Dr. King. Like, you was actually involved in this case, supposedly, correct? Yeah, I was the last judge to hear one of Ray's appeals. He died on me, and his lawyer died on me. And one mm. of his lawyers died on me. So that made it moot. It was hanging between... Uh, well, limbo. The state of Tennessee wasn't too anxious to get to the bottom of the matter. And for that matter, neither are the people. They like to celebrate it, but what's the point if you don't learn from it? Nice holiday. They murdered the man, but they don't have the faith. Uh, brought to justice. I doubt if they ever will, but at least they could learn what happened because now they're so trusting under Homeland Security slash Patriot Act that they don't get it anymore. Congress got appalled at what the FBI and others were up to, and they put some restraints on what they could lawfully engage in. These things had not been lawful before, but they had been done and now they have removed those constraints with the Homeland Patriot Act slash pay, uh, Homeland Security slash Patriot Act. So it's okay to do it again. And you don't put your trust in Big Brother. Not a good idea. Ray didn't kill him. The Memphis Police Department concluded long ago that Ray didn't kill him and also, he wasn't even in town on the day he died. King died, but that didn't stop anybody. The district attorney's office was not interested in getting to the bottom of it. The current one certainly isn't. It's been the enemy of the people in this area and their main tool, the main tool of our oppression around here. So when they decided to take one of us out, they got away with it with impunity. They've been doing it all around the country. But what about the, the civil trial that proved that ended on December 1999 that the jury found the government was complicit in the assassination of Dr. King in Memphis, a civil court in Memphis? Yeah, that was in front of the late Honorable James uh, Swearingen. Mm-hmm. 
circuit court. I testified as a ballistics expert in that. And you actually used the gun or tested the gun, they say, James. Yeah, Ray. I had it tested. Mm-hmm. The first judge, the late Honorable Preston Battle, ordered the rifle retested. He said that the ballistics tests they had done before were fake. Same conclusion I had. I never did get a chance to issue an ultimate finding, but that would have been one of them. The FBI simply faked them. So my thing is this, though. I'm going to ask you this. Like, you know, James L. Ray had a history of being this really a, a screw-up cr- criminal. Like, he'll rob a store and get caught within hours or less than hours. So how was this guy able to escape from a federal penitentiary in Missouri and be on the run for almost three years and get caught in London, the Heathrow Airport, without any type of help? He didn't get caught. He caught himself. Mm. He didn't know uh, things that should have gone along with the holder of a Canadian passport. He also had three English passports uh, in his possession, too. So he was dead incompetent, and we are led to believe that he did this on his own. What what really was was one of perhaps four, maybe five alternative scapegoats. Okay. The weapon that he that was used to shoot King is not that Remington 760 game master that the Civil Rights Museum stupidly jumped upon so they could have a piece of history. Mm-hmm. It was nothing but a little amateurish, ridiculous call. What King got shot with was an XM21 762x51 NATO caliber. It had a psionic suppressor on it. It was a rebuilt M14 with, interestingly enough, a special stainless steel barrel that had a rate of rifling twist of one turn in every 11 and a quarter inches. The Army had produced maybe 62, 63 of these barrels uh, at the Army Marksmanship Unit, and the Navy, Marine Corps, and Army wanted those things for Vietnam, yet the FBI requisitioned five. There was a big furor over that. The inventory, well, the envoy shows they got five of them in late December 1967. And in April 1968, they claimed they could only find four on their inventory, one of them having disappeared. That was the one that they shot King with. It had special supersonic and subsonic ammunition. Uh, that it used, and that was to keep down the sound signature. The shot was not from the flop house. It was not from the bushes. It was from the fire station dormitory. Mm. Right dead across the street. The weapon was left in the fire station and was removed several hours later by officials. So at that fire station, they, they had, what, two firemen at the fire station, Officer Ed Reddick as well? Reddick was not the fireman. Officer Reddick was a police officer. Reddick refused to leave. Uh, The official story is different, but his personal story is that uh, they sent 10 cops in two squad cars. They hogtied him with a rope, double handcuffed him, and threw him in the back seat of the squad car and removed him when he refused to leave. Leave the fire station. What say? Leave the fire station. He refused to leave the fire station. No, I wasn't a fire station. He was at King's side. Reddick was a cop. Okay. 
there's some confusion. There was one black fireman. They advised him that his son had been critically injured in an accident. He rushed around and finally discovered nothing had happened to his son, was told to stay gone and come back in a couple of days, take the day off. Rest of the day off. Now, I've heard a story about Reddit. I interviewed Reddit a couple of years ago before he passed. And I thought I had a couple of stories. He said they had a contract on his life or something like that. They told him oh, that. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. He actually refused to leave. There, were, so. there was a crew of black sergeants and detectives acting as a personal bodyguard for King. Right. They refused to leave his side, but MPD told them that they had to come to a meeting downtown or they would be suspended because there was a threat against their lives. Well, Reddick stayed anyway, and they wound up basically sick, ten cops on him. There were two squad cars, five in each, came down and hog-tied him, threw him in the back of one, and removed him. At that point, uh, the OK is given its for King to go on and go over to Billy Kyle, the Reverend Kyle's house for dinner. Mm-hmm. He was headed out of the east side of the Lorraine Motel. A certain individual I won't identify at this point in time because we're still working on it came and got him and said, Reverend, some of your fans are awaiting you out uh, in the pool. They'd like to see you before you leave. Mm. And that's when he stepped out and wound up getting himself shot. It wasn't Jesse Jackson, by the way. <laughs> well, what about the, like, people talk about how Jesse Jackson was involved in the removal of the Memphis Avengers from Lorraine Motel? What about that? To do with it. He had nothing to do with it. I briefed some of the then extant civil rights leaders on this. And I found there were two distinct responses worded almost exactly the same. Mm-hmm. One of them was, we've got to get to the bottom of this. The mm-hmm. other one, and this is the interesting thing, is it's a direct quote from every one of them involved who was a suspect at the time as being in collaboration with the authorities was, we need to let sleeping dogs lie. Now, Jesse Jackson and Reverend Lowry were in the category of we need to get to the bottom of it, whatever it takes. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, my thing with Billy Cows, though, he did the documentary Witness Room 306. It conflicts with Ralph Abernathy's autobiography of what actually happened that last hour. <laughs> Reverend Cows was one that got King and brought him back from the other side of the hotel to go out by the pool, and he's the one that ducks back in. He said, well, I just ducked it back so in case something happened. Yeah. Right. And also, isn't it ironic that he dies, I believe, on Coretta Scott King's birthday? I don't know. He's been sick for a while. So I'm saying, like, this is interesting. Like, guy, I don't know. But I'm just saying, like, that should be – because he was cross-examined during a civil trial, correct? He was cross-examined back in 99. I was not physically present when that happened. Well, I believe I read it in the Act of State, Dr. William Pepper's book, but the 
transcripts, they showed he was uh, cross-examined that, you know, with some issues with that. But my, my thing is that I think it's fascinating because, like, a lot of this stuff is not being talked about. Like, people assume that Dr. King would normally stay at the Lorraine Motel, which was not the case. He would stay at the Holiday yeah, he Inn. He was Riverport. not supposed to stay at the Lorraine Motel. Mm-hmm. Right. He was doing what civil rights leaders do, and that's integrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rivermont was the flagship hotel for the Holiday Inn, which was at that point headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. That's where Holiday Inn originated. Was That's right. Yes, sir. And over a lot of protests, he was brought, to some people's surprise, to the Lorraine Motel. Um, I think they had surveyed the Lorraine Motel because they were able to come up with a topographical table map within one day after the assassination and that usually takes a little while for a bunch of lieutenants and sergeants to put together mm-hmm. so they already apparently had it it was a two-man hit team one was the spotter one was the shooter uh, those windows across the street from the firehouse across the street in the firehouse slid slightly it was slid slightly open. The shot was from inside. Nobody was hanging out the window. Captain Tommy Smith, who retired as head of homicide, was the first detective there on the scene 10, 15 minutes after the shooting, uh, gave a statement that when he looked out of the bathroom window in the flop house where he was directed, he discovered there was a thick limb growing diagonally across the window, and you couldn't even see the Lorraine Motel. Mm-hmm. And upon his return about an hour later with crime scene, that the limb and the tree had been cut down. Mm. So his conclusion was there's no way in the devil Ray could have shot him from that window. The two eyewitnesses the state has affidavits from, some guy and this woman that were in the flop house, Captain Smith says they were so drunk that he could not revive them and he had to call 911 and they had for ordinary people fatal doses of alcohol in their system. Uh, They were alcoholics and he had talked with a taxi driver who had been there 15 minutes before the shooting and found them in the same condition. So it was his conclusion. They were in no shape to have seen James or Ray or anybody else there. He also says he had gone outside of the flop house, uh, gone back in, returned, and found the rifle that's now in the Civil Rights Museum and a radio with a brass plaque on it with Ray's prison number and name uh, neatly stacked up outside of the flop house on the sidewalk and all of that between his leaving and returning. So that recording of the so-called police chase of Ray's white Mustang on I-40 is acknowledged to have been bogus, and the Homicide Bureau of the Memphis Police Department discovered he was not even present in the the area at the time. It was a two-man team now. The mm-hmm. fire marshal at the station says two federal uh, people came 
two days before the killing and went up on the roof of the fire station and then up to the top of the tower. He says they never went back up to the tower. And that's the statement you get in the so-called documentary that they did on it on television before the 50th anniversary. And essentially, no, the 40th anniversary, and essentially you don't get any investigation of that. And the state was against me having the rifle tested. They filed a document that said, quote, if the rifle is tested now, it may damage it and prevent it from being retested in the future, unquote. Now, what the devil does that mean? And too many of the people involved in the appellate process on that case up to the Court of Criminal Appeals and in the prosecutor's office have had people who were relatives that were involved in the initial case one way or the other. Wow. I thought that you get back to the flop house. I know it was one woman named Grace, I think Gracie Stevens. Her husband was a drunk, and he said that he saw Ray, but he said she didn't that, see no James all the way. Yeah, well, Captain Tommy Smith investigated all of that, found nobody had. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were other people who were alternative scapegoats. Now, this interesting thing, too, mm-hmm. about the escape, I actually did a foreword for a book written by Ray's brother. Okay. On the subject. And Ray supposedly escapes by hiding in the bread truck at the penitentiary that he was confined in. Mm -hmm. They made the bread for that penitentiary and a number of other penitentiaries, so he supposedly hides under the loaves of bread in one of the trucks that is responsible for delivering the fresh bread. So just imagine under those circumstances that one of his priorities is to return to his cell and take his radio. Mm-hmm. You see, that doesn't make any sense at all. The other interesting thing that is discoverable from all of the evidence is within 48 hours of him escaping, they removed the escape bulletin from the wire. Mm-hmm. The thing about the passports that I found interesting is that one of them that he was using was of a Canadian citizen who was a real person and alive. The other three were Englishmen who were real people, but they were all dead. All three of them were born on the same date as Ray. They had the same general description. Two of them had never been reported as having been deceased. One of them had been reported as deceased, but the records had been removed from the equivalent of the English Department of Vital Records. That seems a little bit above and beyond uh, James Earl Ray's capacity. Yes, that's the little too uh, much James yeah. Bond, I spy type stuff. Yeah, he's he too uh, he's too incompetent as a criminal. He's a, 
low-level criminal, he's not that competent. So I just doubt that he has that type of mastermind mentality or that ability. But I uh, the red flag, too. I don't know your take on this. The fact that I talked to Captain Jerry Williams, too, one of the people that be, used to be on King's security detail, Captain Jerry Williams. I talked to him a couple of years yeah. ago, And he said, really, the mentality changed once there was, like, the Frank Holloman guy, the guy who controlled the police and fire department. He served under Jago Hoover for 25 years. He yeah, was Jago yeah. was number three man. Is that yeah. suspicious that he be in place when King well, comes here to control the fire that. police department? There's never been an escape from Ray's penitentiary and the time that it has existed mm-hmm. until Ray and then the person that had become warden was also one of Hoover's assistants, long-term I assistants. didn't know. Wow. God. This is crazy. So you Can we just say the FBI Arnold killed Dr. King? Can we just say the FBI killed Hold on. You see, you also had Claude Armour here in Memphis who had been fire commissioner and director of police. Okay. Jointly at one time, had also been a long-term assistant of J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, man. This is crazy. So what does it say to you? I mean, what does a normal thinking person can look at this and say what? Or should think about? It's typical of what happened in the 60s. See, the operative phrase that goes on in those circles at that time is, one, you know on a need-to-know basis, and two, by any means necessary. Mm-hmm. And there was this thing about, remember, the Red Scare and all of that stupid nonsense. Right. Uh, most ridiculous infringement on American rights you can think of. Uh, they made it a crime to belong to certain organizations or to support or advocate you know, that's all First Amendment stuff. They were so freaked out about it. And the internal memoranda from the FBI that were secured revealed that the FBI had two thoughts about Hoover. They didn't care about civil rights anymore. They always looked at that as a middle-class, feel-good phenomenon that wasn't going to do much of anything, and they thought the civil rights movement was communist uh, led and inspired anyway, and most black churches were supposed to be fronts for communist institutions. Uh, but what they were worried about is this is 1968. You had the Tet Offensive that comes in, and uh, that was designed not to capture territory, but simply for the strategic purpose of showing the American public that the news media and the military and the Pentagon the White House, et cetera, had lied to them, and in that it was very successful, and they were very worried about revitalization of the labor movement. So they were looking at King as being someone to galvanize the anti-war movement, as he had done with the civil rights movement, and someone that would revitalize labor. Uh, activity as was the reason he was here. That was support the sanitation workers. You had characters like this late clown, Kenneth Turner, down at juvenile court that uh, had attempted to threaten the parents with being locked up if they let their children participate in the boycott and things like that. So you had a vested interest going around in Memphis to keep King out of here. 
Now, there was a three-way struggle. There were those who wanted King here within the rights movement or those who were being active in supporting the sanitation workers. There were those who said, we don't need him. We can do it ourselves, and he's passe. And then there were those whose white masters had told them to keep King out. Now, one of the things that was going on then, as is now, is too many of the so-called black leaders have been compromised by taking, say, money under the table, you know, being too much house Negro types who had been doing what they could to defuse black voting or were homosexuals, and that was known to J. Edgar Hoover and his boys, or had sprained sexual rights that they engaged in and or activities, and that was being held against them. Interestingly enough, we came across a personal order signed by J. Edgar Hoover that called off the audio and visual surveillance of King for the 48-hour period before his assassination, uh, when there had been that in place for years beforehand. Hmm. I'm going to ask you this, too. I mean, something I came across in my research. The fact that you had a, a high-level military intelligence operational unit in Memphis from March, 20, March 28th of 1968 to April 12th. What was your thing? It wasn't so much a high-level military intelligence operation as this. Mm -hmm. They had been training some people in certain things in the military, and they didn't know what to do with them once they got out. And there were some state National Guard operations out of Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee that had gotten to be questionable in their membership with too many oh whites rights uh, type and they had too much access to too many armories and too mm-hmm. many uh, interesting pieces of military hardware were getting taken now what looks like happened was that you had some professionals acting in an official maverick capacity, that is, officially unofficial. Uh And that was known to a number of other individuals. There were quite a few memoranda that came into the light of day through the Freedom of Information Act that showed the FBI was discussing actively whether or not King would be more dangerous as a dead martyr or as a live uh, labor anti-war leader, slash anti-war leader. Mm -hmm. You see, those kind of things were in discussion. Um, At that point, you had had a decade that had transitioned from so-called peaceful civil rights, which wasn't much of a struggle. As one white gentleman put it to me one time, said, 
Lawyer Brown is not much of a struggle if you're down on your knees getting your head beat by some redneck until he feels guilty about whipping your behind. That's not much of a struggle. That's getting your butt beat. <laughs> Actually, he says that's getting your ass whipped. Right. Uh, that had morphed into somebody that really scared the devil out of people and who had become more of a viable leader for the up-and-coming militancy of the time, and that was Malcolm X. Then you got H. Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, the ideation of Huey P. Newton, and these guys were the antithesis of peaceful church-going, chicken-eating types with suits and ties on, holding arms and singing, We Shall Overcome, while racists beat them across the head and they got washed down with water hoses. Right. See, they were going out ambushing cops and assassinating cops. They were standing up with guns. They were marching through the state capitol in Sacramento, California, with shotguns at Highport, you know, that's uh, that's not what's supposed to happen. That emphasis got kicked off by the Deacons for Defense and Justice in Louds County. Mm-hmm. And they're the guys who popularized the Black Panther concept. That got taken over out in California and two different locales out there which had two different flavors in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area and then there was another locus of this in Chicago Mm -hmm. each of them had their own flavor and different objectives so it was a thing that was going on you had black student unions taking over buildings on campuses and marching around with guns you had SDS that's basically white kids, students for democratic society, protesting mm-hmm. the war. You had that thing that ultimately happened in 1968 with the police riots in Chicago at the Democratic Convention. Uh, you had a great upheaval. You had Lyndon Baines Johnson nobly saying, I have divided the country, therefore I will not seek nor accept the nomination of my party for another term as president. And quite frankly, I think Oprah did the country a grave disservice with that nonsense she had in Selma, the way they portrayed LBJ. LBJ was probably one of the most ruthless, ruthless, unprincipled people in American politics the first and only person to ever strong arm run the U.S. Senate. But once he achieved the ultimate power of the presidency, he probably came, became the most principled of presidents. Most people don't knew that, know this, but he withdrew Kennedy's civil rights bill as being entirely too weak and substituted one as a military bill, which is a civil rights act of 1964 that passed. He was brilliant in how he strategized it and what he did to get his former redneck constituents and uh, fellow legislators to go along with it. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, He gave a speech shortly after he became president. People were scared, sounded like 
uh, you hear all this hysteria about Trump these days. You heard mm-hmm. about LBJ, and he said basically when he represented a small district uh, in Texas, he would be what would could be described as a classical racist. And then when he became state senator from Texas, he had a bigger constituency. He represented them well, but still a racist. When he became vice president, he had much not much to do, but as the new president, he represented all of the people, and there was going to be some changes. And he did. Probably there hasn't been a president before or since other than perhaps inadvertently Lincoln made to a slightly, well, to a somewhat different and lesser extent, uh, FDR. And certainly there has been nobody since who did as much for black people as uh, LBJ. Uh, He was way in over his head on the war thing and listened to some generals who gave him some very bad advice about Vietnam. They were trying to fight World War II when something totally different was going on. Well, one general that did give him some good advice was MacArthur, though. The one general of all generals. Yeah, he came around. Yeah, but he didn't give. uh, He didn't give LBJ any advice. LBJ, interestingly enough, regularly called former President Eisenhower former General Eisenhower, Mm -hmm. as had Kennedy. Now, the Democratic Party at that point was not very versed in the ins and outs of military and that kind of international politics. And to a great extent, that was due to the Kennedy thing. They wanted youthful exuberance in the White House. They got it. And if you've ever listened to some of those guys interviewed before they died much later in life, they said they scared the devil out of themselves because they didn't know what they were doing. That whole thing about the Cuban Missile Crisis was not brilliance pulled off by Kennedy, but um, Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, had been brilliant and gave uh, JFK his saving face out of, say, you made us blink. We don't have a free press and don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So the ultimate aim that the Russians got was to get the intermediate-range missiles out of Turkey and away from their throats. And they achieved their objective. We had none. Not a clue. Now, I want to get back to a clue. Yes, sir. So I want to get back to like uh, the King thing, because I brought up March 28th when the military first came into Memphis, and they left April 12th. But also on March 28th, that was Dr. King's last march that he led, which became a disaster for him because it was disrupted. It was. But see, that military thing, I think that's just another one of these conspiracy theories. Uh, They really didn't have much to do with anything. One of the things that's going badly is like the weapon. They Mm -hmm. really wanted those five weapons that the FBI got. They only made 63 of them. And they wanted the things for sniping 
in Vietnam, which was a new thing to try and interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail and mm-hmm. do a site job on the Viet Cong and the NVA. They mm-hmm. didn't pull it off, but they desperately wanted all of those weapons for LERPs, Green Beret stuff, mm-hmm. the nascent military sniper that was resurfacing in the U.S. military and for the SEALs. So here's the FBI getting five out of the 60-some. I'm like, what the devil does the FBI need them for? And that was way before they came up with the hostage rescue service. But in any event, you had enough people who had been in and out of the military that were this gung-ho type, and the attitude was displayed in, i tell you a movie where you can see it. Okay. He's pretty good at these things. Clint Eastwood in Dirty Harry. The name of the particular Dirty Harry one was Magnum Force. Okay. There is some discussion in there that is particularly like the language that kept turning up in these memos that we found from the FBI. Now, there had been a center for, well, as a repository for records, and for review purposes on assassinations and assassination attempts. Congress had enabled it by an action, and President George Herbert Walker Bush had strengthened it with an executive order, as did Bill Clinton. And it used to be downtown on 14th Street in D.C. You could walk in, I did so, and pay your fee, and they would give you certified copies of the various documents from all of the federal agencies concerning investigations of attempted political assassinations or assassinations that were actually carried out. That thing has moved out further. Now, I think it's out in Bethesda. I'm not sure, but it's no longer located downtown on 14th Street. And it's a little bit more difficult to do the research. But you went in and you made the request. They do the research and give you the documents. And some of what they came up with was absolutely surprising, uh, particularly these internal FBI memos discussing whether or not to kill King. Why would they keep that stuff around? What would make you want to keep something like that around? Because it's a bureaucracy. There's a bureaucratic mind, and see, a bureaucracy has a mind of its own. The mm-hmm. people that work there are civil servants. That's their career. That's their job. They can't be fired. You know, you get promoted on merit and taken an examinations, and it's not like private enterprise where there's a whole lot of cutthroat nonsense going on. Mm-hmm. Wow, that was bold in me. I mean, I guess they, they bet on people not reading this stuff or analyzing it for themselves, the public. Oh, well, like, for example, the stuff that was in the files here, mm-hmm. uh, there were a couple of memos. One of them had been splashed with coffee that had been sweetened and it was stuck to the back of some stuff. I looked at it personally. Wow. And it was discussing what idiot ordered the... Uh, the rifle to be fired down here in Memphis. And what that was all about was the day after the killing, they took this rifle, somebody down here being a busybody, took Ray's 760 Game Master, and when they shot it at 100 yards, it hit something like six feet to the right and four feet low at 100 yards. It had never even been sighted in. 
or vice versa. But in any event, you know, it was a disaster. And uh, one of the things that came to mind, that comes to mind, now that you have, we're discussing it, is one set of memoranda about the rifle test. It was uh, the director wishes to know how long these tests would take uh, if they were conducted. And then the memo goes back, see agent so-and-so, uh, agent so-and-so sends a memo back, says it would take 30 to maybe 40 days to do this. Another memo comes back, as per the director's wishes, have a ballistics report done by two days hence in draft form for the director to review. Um, please be advised that the request has been complied with by agent so-and-so. Please review the enclosed or the attached. And then uh, a day later, the director wishes the following changes. In other words, in four or five days, they come up with a fictitious test result that ordinarily would have taken at least a month to have done. Wow, it's crazy. And I was going to get your take on, like, what's your thoughts about the Memphis Invaders? Like, what's your take on now? Like, what, they were they a couple miles? About it. They had okay. a good heart about it. They were trying to help things out. They See, you have to understand what was going on at the time. King was passe. If the FBI mm. had left him alone, he probably would have faded as a footnote. Mm. Uh the young people are not like today's young people. We had looked out in embarrassment. It was embarrassing to most of the young black folk who were about things in the rest of the country. White kids would come up, oh, man, you got your dude, got your butt kicked, man. They really jacked you up on that uh, march, man. Oh, man, it was, it was cold, bloody, man. Got your ass whooped, man. Oh, yeah, man, well, you want your ass whooped, man. Keep talking that you smack, you know. So, like I said, we were all fired up by Malcolm. Malcolm was our guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was a different time. Uh, you let your education start lapsing, you were in the Army. And they drafted everybody they could get an excuse to draft. <laughs> So you had an incentive to stay in school. And people were angry, and they were tired of things. And nowadays I get 18, 19, 20, 20-something years, Judge, what should we do? Why are you asking me, an old man, when you ought to be scaring the hell out of me with what you're attempting to do? I'm looking at you, you look like you're passing. Uh We didn't play that. It's a different flavor. You go Mm -hmm. to a party now, and there's everybody from 15 to 75 trying to dance to the same music and do basically the same dances, the most current editions of which are a rehash of something that was going on in 1966, 7, 8, 9, 72, and, you know, rap group sample on 55, 60-year-old uh, stuff that came out of Motown or Saks, you know. 
the idea of my grandfather and I dancing to the same music just was, uh, you know, it, it was something you just didn't conceive of. But the music hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. So it's like we've got a few more years before it looks like we're going to get young people worked up enough to do something. Now, what's going on with the rest of the country looks kind of like what the white people were doing 25, 30 years before the civil rights era. Mm. So they're getting angry, but their anger is directed at two things, this LGBT movement and this feminist thing that is offending a lot of traditional men and women and just, you know, they want women to be stuff that a lot of women don't want to be. Like you talk to women about women in the military and they, you know, like, what is wrong with these people? Why? You know, and then you look at human history, you know, like you put people, women in the front line, you know, and you don't have your back against the wall and it's like to the last person in the village, you know, trying to stave off everything, because if you lose, they're all going to sacrifice you and rip your heart out to the sun guy, you know, mm. this kind of thing. So, I don't know. It's 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 confusing to a lot of people, and for the first time in human history, your labor won't get you anything, because industrial technology and computerization have made you obsolete. Those kind of things weren't staring people in the face and young people were getting angry. They were burning stuff down. They were shooting people not for, you know, the inner city BS, but for the stuff that was being glorified at the time, you know, while we, everybody wants to be a revolutionary. You know, you had this thing in China. You had this example in Russia. You had what was going on in Vietnam. You had this example in Cuba. People were galvanized, and they wanted to be relevant. And you had had this this process of the civil rights era showing people how brutal things were, and you could see the contradictions because you could look at them on TV. Okay. But you don't, I don't know what's going on now. Everybody's so passive. I guess they get off watching the sitcom or the comedy zone stuff that they have where all they want to talk about is somebody's gaffe or the drop of a word or who's doing who rather than who's doing what. And the country has become feminized now. It's softer, kinder, gentler, and everybody's supposed to be reasoned in what they do, and they get all upset, for example, the reaction to the Trump crowd. Oh, my God. They're being full out soft and rude. Oh, please, give it a break. You know, when they throw the N-word around for sport now, where the use of the word was more frequent from different quarters back when, and it was like, uh, 
you get your butt kicked if you say it the wrong place, the wrong time. We weren't calling each other that, you know, in a nice way and getting it all thrown out on the media like, this is how you do it. Mm-hmm. And when it got said to you by the wrong people, it's like, look out, watch your six. Something's about to go down wrong. You know, it was a pressure. Uh, everybody's got the myth now of it's all right, it's a little fine tweaking, and things will be okay. Back then, you know, they had, I think I may have sent you a copy of this, that map that uh, Sinclair Oil, the gas station chain used to put out, that a black postman had done about where it was safe to stay when you were trapped oh, yeah. what houses yeah. and what the addresses were. Mm-hmm. I know my old man would always buy that. We'd travel at, after dark, and it wasn't all of these interstate highways. It was dark, two-lane roads, and you traveled at night because the cops weren't out and you didn't want to run into John Law or Smokey or police so you either stayed at a colored motel during daylight and slept then or you pulled over in some convenient woods off the road and you slept up in the trees and everybody carried a bedpan in the car and a water sack canvas water bag strapped to the front bumper so it could stay cool and you carried around your proverbial fried chicken you liked yeah. the Greyhound bus because they'd let us eat there without any hassle. Otherwise, be prepared. Somebody would go up and knock on the door of the restaurant and ask if they could even get told, go around the back, and you'd be handed to you out the kitchen. Mm. You see, uh, serious wrong place, wrong time, you get rocks, bricks, and bullets thrown at your car with your family in there with you. You'd get within 15, 20 miles of your destination. You could travel in daylight. Uh, where are you going, boy? Why do you get this car here? Mm. All the nice car for a nigga to be driving. Hell, what you do, boy? Well, sir, we're just going to go visit our kin. You got kin folk around here, boy? Who your kin folk? Oh, you're going to see hard there. Yeah, them good people. As long as they're too sure. God damn it. Go on with it. You just go on about your business. You're going to run into Trooper Jackson about 10 miles up there. you just telling you already saw Trooper Robinson. They flag you right on by. Mm. They's good colored people. Good credit to their race. Mm. See, that's the way it used to be, man. I'd run into that growing up. You know, so quite a few times. It was humiliating and ridiculous, and it certainly wasn't safe. So, Judge, let me ask you this, too. Uh, I know I talked to a civil rights veteran last week at a conference in Jackson, Mississippi, and he told me he's a veteran himself. He said that uh, black men were not allowed to join the National Guard during the 60s to avoid the draft. Exactly. That's true. That is true. That's that is true. And wow. see, that's the other thing, like George Walker Bush. There you talked about, yeah. Texas National Guard, Air Force National Guard, he's on AWOL for six, seven, eight, nine, almost nine, almost a year. 
because they were having problems with people getting high, so they put in this mandatory requirement that every week these dudes had to report and give a pee test. So mm-hmm. he couldn't pass it because he was staying high all the time. Mm. But, see, that's all right. He was, had a drug habit he was in, 40, in his 40s, but that's the youthful indiscretion in you in your 40s. You know, mm-hmm. he applied it way with us. See, I was not a civil rights veteran. There was mm-hmm. no way I was going to peacefully let somebody whip me. I'd play kamikaze. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, not me. You know, we were going to go down. They could kill me, but I was going to take somebody to Valhalla with me. <laughs> yes, brother. You pray to Jesus all you wanted, but uh, Jesus wasn't going to protect me. I was going to protect myself, and I was going to do it violently and effectively. Yeah. Even if I wasn't getting out of there, somebody was going down with me. But see, uh, no, uh-uh. I was going to ask you this. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to ask you because when you said all that, I was thinking about I'm still thinking about April 4, 68, where you had, you know, this guy who infiltrated the invaders named Morel McCullough. If you look at that famous photo, he's kneeling over Dr. King, but he was undercover against police and military intelligence then, became a CIA officer. I had a chance to talk to him on the phone about two minutes, uh, about two years ago, as I came from Samuel. And now you think about what happened to Malcolm X, his chief bodyguard, Eugene Roberts, was undercover NYPD for the boss program. And you go to Chicago with Fred Hampton Sr., the Black Panther uh, chairman, whose chief bodyguard was William O'Neill, who was the FBI informant. So how can we just go around and act like we don't know who killed, killed our people, our leaders? Oh, yeah. like, it's our own government. It is like a farce. For mm-hmm. example, there was a long connection between the Jewish community and the NAACP. Right. The theory was is that if they couldn't be allowed, if they can't do it, if they couldn't do it to a colored man, they certainly couldn't do it to a Jew. For colored people, the interesting thing was the SPCA laws, the Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animal Laws. If you couldn't do it to a dog, you couldn't do it to a Negro. So most of the civil rights advances for the first 50 years of the 20th century came under the prevention of cruelty to animal laws. You know, so there was a a collaboration there. But what happened is I think second and third presidents of the NAACP weren't just FBI agents. I mean, Mm -hmm. informants, they were sworn agents. Right. You know, and Mm -hmm. you had this other thing too, see, you had a lot of I don't want to badmouth gay folks for this, but you had some gays that were compromised in a time where it just did not pay to be revealed as gay. And J. Edgar Hoover had knowledge of who was doing what, and they got extorted. Now, speaking of which, J. Edgar Hoover was obviously gay, and there's also another thing now you can hear on the History Channel. He also apparently was black. Right. If you look at some early pictures of J. Edgar Hoover, he looks like Harold Ford Jr. He does like a Ford. Old, jolly, liver-spotted old white man. Uh-huh. And he hated the Klan, which was interesting. He hated the Klan. Uh-huh. 
And the apparent reason is is the Klan used to burn crosses on his parents' property to punish them for passing for white. Mm. So, you know, that is what it is. What do we need to do as far as for people? Do we need to hold some type of special event in Memphis on the 50th anniversary year of Dr. King's assassination to let the truth family come out for the public to really amplify the truth of what happened that day and the things that led up to it and the people and the organizations involved? Yeah, see, these things they put on national media about Mm -hmm. documentary, they are so far from the reality of the thing. It's pathetic. Now, the FBI was out of control. Hoover was a sick man. Right. He tried to kill Dick Gregory, too, and then Dick Gregory got the uh, evidence, the memo and the uh, and oh, Chicago yeah. Tribune article. Oh, yeah. They tried to kill him. He was a comedian. Well, see, everybody <laughs> on the West Coast, East Coast, uh, Chicago area that was active can give you some stories. Mm-hmm. where the FBI is at least a component in there where they tried to do something. To, or you are at a meeting discussing what you're going to do to get some black professors in the econ department at your college or university. The FBI would snatch you off the street, you know, two weeks later and verbatim quote back to you what you supposedly said. So First Amendment, folks, you heard of that, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. anything illegal with First Amendment, I have no comment. <laughs> so many a time you got snatched, taken 25, 30 miles away from your car, they confiscate all your money and you have to borrow a quarter, well, a dime to make a phone call so somebody could come get you and take you back to your car. Wow. It was rough. Yeah, I had you know, people died all the time. Yeah, I had a chance to talk to Diane Nash. I was doing an interview with Diane Nash, one of the leaders of the Smith movement, you know, like one of the you know, leaders of that movement of the era. And she was talking about how she used to tell the FBI all the time where they were going. And all of a sudden, when they were going to the place, trouble started. And I said, did y'all ever figure out that it was the FBI that probably was in collusion with certain entities in that in that area that would cause y'all trouble? Yeah, and they have he, agitators. Why don't somebody throw a brick, man? Somebody, somebody got a Molotov cocktail? Man, why the hell would somebody be here <laughs> with a bottle of gasoline in their hand? Right, that's kind of weird. Yeah. Oh, well, that's man, a lot of them have been compromised, right. Yeah, but I'm saying a lot of people... We lost a lot of good people because I remember just looking at some of the stuff that came out in the church report, uh, Senator Frank Church from Idaho, his church committee findings. When you had, they talk about heart attack guns were being used on people back in the 40s and 50s. I mean, talking about international espionage and some of the abuses at home that the intelligence community inflicted on American citizens. Well, see, there are some other things, too. Those who were actually active in doing something quote, militant, unquote, mm-hmm. have a reaction against certain things. Like, we don't celebrate, celebrate Kwanzaa. Right. 
that was the product of an organization known as the Us Organization, who's saying with everywhere we are, us is. And the person that ran that organization or founded it, Ron Everett, also known as the Mile, known as the Maulana Ron Karinga. Uh, he was a sick individual, and he was widely reputed to be a snitch for the FBI and the special investigation section of LAPD. So he is; they are directly responsible for the murders of a lot of people who were activists back when. Mm-hmm. And we don't look kindly on that, so we are not going to celebrate one of that entity's creations uh, where he was trying to get uh, national fame. Uh, Kwanzaa. Uh, mm-hmm. And so okay. Kwanzaa. Mm-hmm. Is a is an interesting language which they tried to focus on. It's a slave language. Okay. It's a pidgin language that originated in East Africa. It's composed of equal components of Dutch, Arabic, and Bantu, and it was used on the East African slave trade. Now I'll give you an example. Nineteen seventy through there's a guy named a Yuko Babu, who's a good guy. Mm-hmm. He still runs the Pan-African Film Festival. So okay. he got it in himself that he wanted to organize something, and he brought a bunch of us together to get equipment for Filemo, the mm. gorillas down in Mozambique. So we had managed to get an airliner full of combat boots and other stuff to send down there to them. But the State Department put a stop to that, so it had to be money. So we put on a concert fundraiser down at the Palladium in L.A. on Hollywood Boulevard. So we had Stevie Wonder, volunteered, Pharaoh Sanders, Oscar Brown Jr., and Gene Pace, and, you know, Taj Mahal, these groups, and they did it for free. Stevie gave a three-hour-long concert, and people weren't coming up out of there, and the owner just asked us to please tell everybody to take the drinks off the table after 2 a.m., and we went literally until the sun rose. Well, meanwhile, Karinga and the US organization wanted $5,000 to do $5,000 to do this rubber boots dance, and they got told they had to be absolutely crazy and bereft of mind because, you know, if you could get Stevie Wonder doing a free concert, well, not charging us anything just to raise money, and these clowns wanted 5000 you know, hey, go rip off somebody else. But mm. see, there's a long negative history about those people. So that was a bad thing. Uh, around 65, it really started peaking. They had these so-called riots, which really were uprisings because they had a political purpose. And they vented a lot of frustration and aggression. Mm. And the communities came together 
the killings in the inner city stop, the crime stop, people started getting together, and then the FBI started infiltrating all of these organizations, coordinating with local police departments, so you couldn't trust anybody. And then you got Richard Nixon elected. And by the way, a little history, Hillary Clinton was going around the country campaigning for Richard Nixon. And then see what happened is they lost faith in the White House. No more big white daddy up there who would help them out. No more LBJ. So when Tricky Dick got in, Hoover was doing his thing. They started funneling drugs in and some other stuff. You know, there's a lot of things that went wrong, and people started looking at each other out of the corner of their eyes. You know, can I trust him? No, you can't trust anybody. And people are turning up dead, you know, with great frequency. So they well, went from high to low. King was just one of the high, uh, highly visible ones, but that was tenfold down on a lower level, and it wasn't about drugs and stuff like that. It was just somebody had been organizing in his neighborhood to get students to be more attentive in school. Schools would have blowouts where the kids would say, well, we aren't getting educated appropriately. We are protesting. You know, this is the kind of thing that was going on. So it was a whole different flavor then than it is now, you know. Well, is, it, was it, is it true that more Panthers were killed by other Panthers than the police? I don't think so. Okay. Here's what the problem was. The Panthers, mm-hmm. Like I said, there were three locales. L.A., mm-hmm. San Francisco, Oakland, and basically Oakland. That's the Bay Area, we call it, and out here in Chicago. Well, what happened is that they started. The political thing was cool. It attracted certain types, and people started getting out of the penitentiary who had been former gang members. The gangs had died off right around 65 when those uprisings were occurring and the frustration was getting bent. And like in L.A., you had a situation where you had an old gang known as the Sloss. And a whole lot of the Slossons, when they got out of the penitentiary, became Panthers. You had an old gang known as the Businessmen. They gravitated to the US organization we were talking about. They cut deals. And then some of them brought this mentality out where they started, in the name of the revolution, just going back and doing what was at that time being called counter-revolutionary, you don't sell drugs, stuff like this other stuff. And you started getting a resurgence of the criminality that had been existing prior to 1965. And a lot of that resulted in people dying. It wasn't police doing the killing. Mm-hmm. That was where the killing was coming in. And a lot of the other stuff was just, frankly, the police were protecting the whole. Like, for example, at UCLA 1968, uh, we had recruited some Pampas, John Huggins, Bunchy Carter. Huggins came mm-hmm. from back east, 
Bunchy Carter had done time in the penitentiary and had gone in illiterate but came out like Malcolm X being able to write, and he did poetry and a lot of other stuff, and he had been a slosser. And then you had two twin brothers that were with us and two other ones, and everybody knew them, so they gunned down John Huggins and Bunchy Carter at high noon on the UCLA campus uh, in front of, let me see, 43 witnesses. Mm-hmm. And to make a long story short, Donnie Toxin represented the two that they caught. They didn't have to do much work to catch them. They were the accessories. They weren't the actual gunmen. They got convicted of second-degree murder, but within a year, they had escaped, and the escape bulletin was taken off of the wire within 24 hours. I saw them at that function at the Palladium I talked about just a little few minutes ago. And ultimately, some 25, 30 years later, they decided to surrender and got told, uh, who are you? Well, we escaped. You know, after being convicted of second-degree murder, we're tried, tired of hiring. Well, mm. we aren't interested. Just keep on doing your thing. Good luck. Wow. So, you know, there was that type of stuff. Uh, it was so bad that witness after witness said, I know where the guy's mama lives. I know where both of them mama live. They live on such and such street. This is one of them phone number. Police weren't interested. The detectives said that they thought we were crazy when we were advising them that they were all working together. No, they're not working with us. And then they wound up confiding that, oh, I think they are. We get ready to go bust. And, you know, they get tipped off. And somebody in our department tells them. So, yeah, that was a lot of murders that went on. There was one farm that we had to convince certain detectives in LAPD to go investigate, and they found nine or ten bodies buried on it, just like they were told they would find, but they weren't interested at first. Then nothing came out of it. But, see, people were getting killed at all levels. And the justification was that the communists are about to take over you know, this is the height of the Cold War. We were getting our butts beat in Vietnam, and they were trying to hide that. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I know, Chad, I really appreciate you giving us all this history. I mean, it's a vast, like a vast warehouse of knowledge over there, and there's so many things to dip into and really consider. I want you to take, I know I talked to you before about this movie, this Get Out movie, and I think you've seen the movie, correct? I have. And what's your thoughts about that movie? I think it is an interesting movie. <laughs> I think the message is is if you let your preconceptions preconceptions dominate your perspective, you'll miss the point. And you hear a whole lot of people saying it's showing that racism's not dead. But actually what it's showing is if you say that particularly if you're white, you're illustrating a point that they're making in the movie. Have you seen it? Yes, sir. 
Okay. Remember TSA boy who kept talking about the sexual slave bit that was his fantasy? Uh-huh. He couldn't he couldn't see what was going on because that perspective of his colored everything. Homeboy that was the boyfriend was looking at it as old time racism. But it wasn't old time racism, it was something entirely different. It was showing to an extent that what Malcolm learned does have an application. It's not so much the race or the color, it's the culture. Remember, I don't want to spoil it for those who haven't seen the movie, Mm -hmm. but remember what these white folk were trying to become? Mm -hmm. Now, if you hate something, why would you want to become that? <laughs> you see, that's what everybody seems to have missed. Oh, it's this old-time racism. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, you know, and then grandpa and grandma. You know, oh, that's right. Wow. See, it's Jesse know, Owens thing. really did it. Him in, didn't he? He cooked it over Jesse Owens in 36. <laughs> yeah. But guess what? You see, mm-hmm. what are you trying to become? Right. And if you hate something, why would you try to become what you hate? You see, that, that opens up a whole different range. Well, it's all this whole time racism. No, it's not. Mm-hmm. Something right. different. And the racism that comes out is people's perspective on what's going on in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really deep right there. It is fascinating. It made me think about uh, you know, David Rockefeller. He died recently at 101 years old, but he had like eight hearts in one lifetime. He had seven heart transplants. And uh, I guess he, I wonder if he saw that movie get out before he passed and said, I'm going to do it another way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why I think about Harry Pazit. He, he wanted to stay alive a real long time, but maybe he saw that movie and said, I'm going to do it another way. Yeah. See, it's like that came out of far left field in that movie. I enjoyed the movie. Okay, you did enjoy it. I know it was, it was kind of different. I didn't know what to expect myself, but it was very because I I saw it late. I saw the late show. It had a ten o'clock show at the Paradiso on a weekday, and I was amazed how packed it was. It was packed with a lot of black folk in it and a sprinkling of white people. But I know a lot of white folks were very surprised at what they ended up seeing. They was not expecting that. Well, yeah, and you know, I saw it twice at the Paradise. You saw it twice? Wow. Yeah, three times, actually. Three times. There was hardly anybody in there. One time mm-hmm. that was mostly black folk, and another time they were mostly white folk. And how was the experience? How was the experience? The, yeah, the reaction of the audience was different. Mm-hmm. And well, I white saw folks a lot of nerve. I saw a lot of nervous. I heard a lot of nervous laughter in there. From so the white folk, people? it was at certain things, and from white folk, it was at certain things. Okay, interesting. When we are not, I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody that hasn't seen it. But next time we get a chance to talk, so we don't do that, we'll talk about it a little more. But I don't want to ruin the movie for somebody. <laughs> but you know what's interesting? The guy who created the movie and directed it, Jordan Peele, he's married to a white woman. Yeah, and his, guess where they from? His, his white girl, his white wife is from Oakland, and her daddy is married to a black woman. Yep. 
That's crazy. That's interesting. But I wonder whether like a crack would help. That's why I was thinking about Jordan Field. Well, <laughs> remember what Malcolm said. It wasn't so uh-huh. much the race. It was the outlook. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And by the way, black folk ought to consider that in the religion they choose. Yeah. What has the yeah. religion been doing about race through its existence? Has it been one that's been neutral to race, or has yeah. it been one that's exploited race? Wow. That's interesting. See, there yeah. isn't but one monotheistic religion that has not exploited race. But that's on the hate list. You know, you practice that when you might get travel banned. Oh, I got you. I hear you. Wow. Wow. Well, Judge, I want to thank you so much, as always, for giving us all this food for thought. I mean, people are so, they are so, like, wow, it's amazing. Like, uh, you can see the comment section of some of your videos. People are really embracing the message that you send out to our people and to humanity in general. And uh, I just want to say, you have any closing thoughts or words you'd like to share? Thank you. I just say this. Don't rely on the media, traditional media, much. Their vested interest is in entertaining you so they can boost commercial ratings and get commercial advertising. They are not interested in the story other than as a device to get you anxiously running back to see the latest installment. Thank you, oh Judge, so much. What's, what's Trump done this time? Oh, my God. Did you hear about someone? To, oh, my. <laughs> That's irrelevant. You know, they won't even give you an analysis based on objectivity. They just want to have a bunch of dumb bunnies that have their head stuffed so far up their butt ends they couldn't see, let alone hear what's going on around them anyway. Yes, sir. So go do your own research. Go look at unorthodox things. Don't always try to think of a conspiracy explaining it. Uh, A lot of times stuff just happens because it's human nature. Find out what human nature is. I know somebody that always tells me, why waste time studying history? Well, dumb bunny, if you don't study history, you don't know what you're looking at right now. Because the past is never past. <laughs> like human the past nature is human nature. There's nothing new under the sun. Right. Just see what people have done in the past, and you might recognize what they're doing now. Mm. Well, thank you guys so much for that wisdom and insight. In the words of Greg DeGelton, we love you madly. Keep on producing and pushing. All right, brother. Thank you. Have a Thank you, Judge. You too. And also, Judge, I'm a, I'm a, I got your email. I'm going to send you the information. But basically, just be yourself. Do your thing, man. Like, we want you to set the mood. Like, they going to, I guess, have you speak first on, on Tuesday. I think it's on Wednesday. Excuse me. And just set the context for why Four Pillar existed, I guess. Okay. Since we aren't back on the recorded subject, put on that Four Pillar thing. You know, one of the most important things, despite studying history, mm-hmm. when you see what's going on in Fort Pillar, mm-hmm. in a city where only 19.1% of the registered voters are white. Right. 
and you got that bastard statue down there sitting in front of all those hospitals on Union Avenue. Mm-hmm. And his bones and his scrawny little wife's bones down there. Yeah, right. Position. Mm-hmm. What the hell does that have to say about what's in your head and what's in this city's head and what's been done that needs to be undone? That's right. You know, that's like having Heinrich Himmler have a statue Basically. in a, a, a town that is 70% Jewish. Yeah. Just think about it. Mm-hmm. They get all freaked out about a swastika, right? But they get, and it's an ancient symbol. But they, oh my God, good old Daisy Duke and her boyfriends with Johnny Red Prague. <laughs> That's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, wipe out all traces of Hitler in Germany. But that'd be like going to, you know, Tel Aviv. And having a statue of Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Just think about that. That's it. Well, maybe not Hitler. Uh, How about Himmler? Mm -hmm. You know, a good propaganda. You see, it's just like, what's wrong with this place? Oh, well, FedEx might not like Well, go to hell, FedEx. You're getting that damn statue moved. Go take it up to some Confederate museum. Yeah, definitely. I also want you to, uh, one thing I forgot to ask you on the King thing, uh, like on the record, on like the King thing, your thoughts about the narrative that they're now saying that Dr. King was suffocated at St. Joseph's, that he actually did not die on the balcony. No, oh, no. You don't buy that? No. The bullet goes in his right upper cheek at an angle going from forward to down, from the right side to left. Takes mm-hmm. out molars, rips up his tongue, goes out between his lower jaws, leaves the body. It hits him right where the clavicle is, ricochets under the skin, goes around and nicks the carotid artery. He's going to bleed out on that. That's you can't do anything with that one. The body's going to try to pump more blood in the other carotid artery, but wind up pumping more out of it out of that wound. So it travels over his back, under the skin, over the right scapula, going from right to left, from top to bottom. And it lodges on his left side between the left scapula and the back skin. The bullet never penetrates the thorax. So you cut somebody's jugular vein, that's one thing. You cut their carotid artery, they're done. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's the thing. The thing came out that Dr. William Temple's book, and he's been talking about since his past summer that he might have been suffocated at the hospital. He could have survived the, the shot and been paralyzed. Oh, no. He wouldn't have been paralyzed. It didn't hit the central nervous system. If it hadn't clipped the carotid artery, he might have survived, but he wouldn't have been able to talk too well. Okay, we trust the autopsy report. That's what I'm saying. If people are in this conspiracy to this level, could, can we trust the actual forensics and the official autopsy report? On I this? saw the pictures of the body. Okay. 
it clipped the carotid artery. You think they could have manipulated that after he was dead? No, that that would kill you. Okay. No, I don't want to know they're putting it out there because it's hard to trust these folks, these folks that, with this narrative about the king. And now we know that the government was involved. You got the paper trail. Well, the memos and whatnot. This is what's happening. Mm-hmm. If you shoot somebody with a 308, 762 NATO, 30-06, mm-hmm. uh, with an expanding bullet, and you get a good solid torso hit, they could be standing next to the emergency room, and that's non-survivable. Mm. Yes, sir. They're dead. Mm-hmm. So they shoot him with a 162-grain expanding 30 caliber bullet, but they don't take a chest shot. That's because energy equals mass times velocity squared. Mm-hmm. That's Einstein's thing. Yes, so they slowed this bullet down so it is not supersonic. It's going 1,100 feet per second. That makes it a 30 caliber pistol, mm-hmm. not a 30 caliber rifle. So that's why they take a head shot and they almost miss it. Wow. See, mm. that was about the perfect shot. And see, the other thing is it clips the carotid artery, but the bullet doesn't break the skin again because it's Kept on the flick. And that's not uncommon for somebody to be shot straight on the front. The bullet penetrates the skin, hits the rib, ricochets around the rib, all the way around the side, like in a half circle, and then come out the back. And it looks like the person got shot straight through when they didn't. Mm. American history of these bullets, for I tell you. When you get hit in the forehead at a slight angle, the bullet travels under the skin around the skull and then comes out the backside. Uh, it looks like when it leaves the skin back there, it looks like he got shot straight through the head, but he didn't get a bullet through the skull. It hit the skull and went around it under the skin. Okay. So, oh, my dude's fucked up. Like the famous, you know, they stories like, oh, dude's fucked up, man. Get laughed right. The hell you are. I'm stealing. Wait a minute. Is that you? Yeah, it's me talking. You're not fucked up? No, man. Boy, you got shot straight through the head. I did. My head hurts, but it doesn't feel like I got shot through the head. And then they checked and didn't penetrate the skull. Mm. Wow. And what do you, uh, you take on the, like, he's trying to say there was a Mrs. Police officer that, that fired that shot. I think his name was Earl Clark. It was, was, not, it was not a Memphis police officer, unless that was just uh, an accident. It looked like, and this is where you may have gotten some of that, where some of that conspiracy stuff gets confused. Mm-hmm. A lot of people that were getting trained in this stuff back then, and they didn't quite know what to do with them. Those people they put in the state national guards, and that's because they'd been trained to snipe, and they'd had a little practice in the early 60s over in the NOM, shoot help. It was a two-man team, a spotter and a shooter. Mm Mm-hmm. 
what they what that works is you have an anticipated target area and you move the sliding glass aside. You don't hang out the rifle barrel out the window. You're on something more solid fifteen feet inside. So all you can see directly is through that build narrow slot. So your spotter watches to see when the target approaches. He says, target in view. The shooter says, I have it. And then the spotter says, send it. The gunman squeezes the trigger. The rifle is on sandbags or something to stabilize it, so all he's got to do is get out and make the final sight adjustment. Bam, he's dead. Sounds attenuated. It comes out the side door of the fire station. That's why people think the sound was coming from those bushes, because that's why the weapon was set up like it was, to attenuate the sound. Somebody shoots at you in a forest, the bullet, ordinarily a rifle bullet, is going supersonic, and it leaves a little minor shock waves. Every time it passes a tree, it goes crack. So you can see the echo, hear the echo, crack, 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 crack. And oh, it's over there. So the whole idea was to throw that off so it didn't leave the crack. Wow. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. Wow. No, they didn't need to suffocate him. They fucked him up. <laughs> you ain't get this on the local news either, people. <laughs> they sure wasn't telling none of this on local news the other day. Uh-uh. They ain't going to share it. Nah. He got his ass good. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you so much. All I'm sorry. doing was confirming you got it. Mm-hmm. Uh. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. You take care. I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. Thank you. All right. Yes, sir.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.